and welcome to another Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. As those of you who visit our website, www.necromancersonline.com, are no doubt aware, this whole week has been devoted to one of the most misunderstood and, we believe, undervalued schools of magic, divination. While diviners may not be the flashiest of spellcasters, and there's no doubt that the school doesn't provide much in the way of overtly offensive magic, it's virtually impossible to underestimate the value of a good diviner, as they, use, they can use their magic to gain valuable information, which you can then use to properly prepare for whatever eventuality occurs. Not sure what's in that cave you're about to go explore? Send in some prying eyes and learn that it's full of basilisks, and you'd be wise to head back to town and grab some anti-petrification gear. Or, maybe it's got a dragon in it, ten levels above your party, and it'd be better not to go in at all. Or, maybe you just discover that the orcs inside have set up a nasty ambush and a murder room, and now you know exactly how to avoid it and punish those impudent pigmen. Uh, watch your enemies from afar and learn their habits, and most likely their schemes, with scrying, grasp the secrets of the deceased with speak with dead, ask advice from the gods with augury or better magic, gain all sorts of obscure lore out of nowhere with legend lore. There's all sorts of different things that you can do with divination magic, and as we all know, knowledge is power. So, now that you're hopefully sold on the importance of divination, and want to run your own wise and sagacious wizard who's always three steps ahead of the competition, I'll bet you're wondering what sorts of extra content there is out there for diviners. You do well to swing by our website, of course, where we've spent the whole week creating content in tribute to the Divination School of Magic, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that there are some great divination spells and other options in Advanced Arcana and Advanced Arcana 2, both products that are available on DriveThruRPG or Paizo.com for the low, low price of $4.99 each. But, as those of you who are already acquainted with the art of divination no doubt already know, I'm actually leading into a product review. So, what book did I find that will be of special interest to diviners? It's entitled Encyclopedia Arcane Divination, The All-Seeing Eye. And it was published by Mongoose Publishing. It's 67 pages long, if you include the cover pages and legal info, and it's currently available on DriveThruRPG for $3.99, marked down from an initial price of $14.95. And it's devoted entirely to the School of Divination. Part of the reason I selected this book, in particular, is that a few weeks ago, when I was looking for a good alternative to a book about alternate spellcasting components that I was reviewing, I recommended a different installment of Encyclopedia Arcane, and that book was really quite interesting, so I have high hopes for this one. The book begins with an introduction that serves primarily as a persuasive essay arguing in favor of divination being a relevant and interesting school of magic, and aiming to get the reader excited and engaged in the concept uh, to want to play a divination-focused caster. After this brief section, it moves on to what it describes as an overview of the school, with ponderings by the author about such topics as the source of the information gained by div divination spells, uh, exploring the concept of where the knowledge provided by these seemingly all-knowing benefits, all-knowing spells come from, uh, or why so many divination spells can only affect the caster instead of providing their information to any target the caster desires. If this doesn't sound particularly interesting, or even remotely relevant to you, don't worry, you're not alone. While there are probably a handful of spells that grant information and seem like they would require some sort of all-knowing source, most are pretty straightforward. Contrary to what the author posits, you really don't need divine intervention in order for a detect magic spell to make sense. Magic objects radiate a magical aura, which detect magic is able to make you see. No mystery there. And most of the question and answer divination spells more or less spell out exactly who you're talking to and getting your information from. Similarly, there's no great conspiracy about why most divination spells only affect the caster, most likely it just didn't occur to anyone to do it that way because it's just not what you see in fantasy media and any other 
creative sources that the game's creators are going to be leaning on. Typically, when you have a old gray-bearded uh, diviner uh, looking into his crystal ball or otherwise performing some sort of divination magic, he's just not giving that information to someone else. He gets it for himself and then lets them know. On the other hand, I can sympathize with the desire to add a little bit of in-game fluff and mystery to explain, or even just work around, out-of-game mechanical issues, and I'm sure that some readers will find this section interesting, even if I found it to be somewhat straightforward, pedestrian, and beside the point. Luckily, it's rather brief, so either way, it won't make that much of a difference, and before more than a few pages have been used up, we move on to the next section, entitled Knowing the Unknowable. This section of the book begins with another short essay about the power of divination magic, this one aiming more on practical application, pointing out the power of detect magic, for example, to illuminate anyone wearing or holding magic gear or under the effects of a magic spell, and positing that no matter what a rogue's stealth roll, he won't be able to hide if his magic armor is glowing like a beacon, and that while you may not know the exact appearance of someone wearing a hat of disguise, you will certainly know that they're under an illusion effect. He points out a number of other divination spells that are routinely undervalued, in his estimation anyway, such as True Strike, Tongues, Telepathic Bond, and so on. Uh, there are also considerations of some gear that every diviner should have, some of which may surprise you, and on the value of not advertising oneself as a diviner. Some of this information will no doubt be useful to you, especially if this is going to be your first foray into the Batman style of Wizard, where you plan first, and then act when you have amassed an overwhelming advantage. Uh, but it's a relatively short section, so don't expect any huge revelations here either. The book then shifts paths dramatically and jumps right into a prestige class called the Arcanopath, which seems to be a prestige class for pseudo-psychic spellcasters with a focus on telepathy. The class starts out very strong indeed, granting the Arcanopath access to detect thoughts as a supernatural ability at will, albeit with the potentially powerful drawback that it requires an additional concentration check, and that failure on that concentration check inflicts 2 die 6 points of subdual damage to the Arcanopath. At least, I hope it's an additional concentration check, because it's not 100% clear whether or not this concentration check is supposed to be done in addition to, or instead of, the spell's normal will save, and if there's one thing worse than constant detect thoughts on a PC, it's removing one's ability to actually defend against mental intrusion. Whatever the case, at later levels, this class, also, uh, this class feature also grants the Arcanopath access to telepathic bond and sending at will. Uh, the next class feature is a bit more puzzling, and while it might take, make a certain amount of flavor sense, it ultimately proves so incredibly pointless that I can't imagine why anyone would consider it a good idea to include in the class. The feature, called Awaken, states that, and I quote, Upon taking this prestige class, the character's mind awakens and is completely open to external contact, until he learns to compensate for his new awareness and protect himself from mental intrusion and assault, he suffers a penalty to all willpower saves equal to his intelligence modifier. This penalty is negated upon the character reaching the second level in this class. As an aside to those of you who listen in the hopes of more design advice, like that from my old column Dark Designs, this is bad design. I would argue that there's nothing strictly wrong with a class feature that's all drawback, though some other designers would disagree with me, but one that provides a substantial drawback for one level and then suddenly disappears? This whole class feature just feels like an angry, screw you for taking my class. Please, if you want to get into game design, don't do things like this. 
the next class feature is another one that comes from a cool place flavorfully, but where the author allowed it to become too complicated and bogged down in flavor-driven mechanics until it became a swampy morass. At second level, the Arcanopath can effectively wall off his mind as a free action, automatically negating a mind-affecting effect he may be suffering from, as long as that effect source has fewer hit dice than his caster level. So far, so good, more or less, though the ability has the potential to be both frustratingly powerful, as it's basically complete immunity to all mind-affecting effects as long as the caster's hit dice doesn't exceed his own, uh, but also frustratingly useless, as many monsters have far more hit dice than their CR, and more importantly, a charmed or dominated character would have no good reason to invoke this shield, and probably shouldn't, but the player would want to anyway, creating all kinds of unnecessary friction. On top of this, though, while the effect is, is active, the Arcanopath can't cast or control any mind-affecting spells of his own, which makes a certain amount of sense, except for any that come as class features from the Arcanopath class, for some reason. The class largely continues in the same way. The next class feature grants the ability to incorporate a touch attack into a divination or enchantment spell in order to impose a hefty penalty to, on the target's will save, but it's okay, because if they succeed on the save, the Arcanopath takes a bunch of subdual damage. Oh, and did I mention that if you have Iron Will, you're completely immune for no good reason? The character also gains a Mind Tower that he can retreat to in order to heal faster and take 20 on knowledge decks. He gains a Mind Strike ability, which lets him hit any number of creatures he likes within 30 feet for 10 die 6 non-lethal damage a number of times per day, equal to his Charisma modifier, with a save for half damage. Eventually, any creature that the Arcanopath can see, who is within 10 feet per caster level, suffers a penalty on will saves against his spells equal to his class level, i.e. a ridiculously massive minus 10 penalty on will saves. Uh, use Dominate Monster on anything and everything in sight to make everyone my slave? Why, thank you! I don't mind if I do! If that weren't enough, uh, at the end of the class, he gets a class feature called Mental Mastery, which is just a jumbled collection of improvements to various class features. He no longer needs to make concentration checks for the Detect Thoughts ability, he gets twice as many of those Subdual Fireballs per day, and he gets Constant Mind Blank. Plus, he gets a plus four bonus to concentration out of left field. Sadly, this class is more or less going to set the tone for the rest of the book, and is much closer to the watermark for the best level of design we're going to see in the book, rather than the lowest. Next up is the Mind Shifter, a prestige class devoted to stealing portions of other creatures' minds and shifting your own psyche's form. Or something like that, anyway. The class starts out with the ominously named class feature, The First Choice. The choice apparently involves, and I quote, whether to embrace the ever-changing nature of his mutating mind or try to retain some aspect of his original self. If the Mind Shifter decides to embrace Chaos, he gains a plus one inherent bonus to intelligence as the madness begins to give him great insight. A Mind Shifter making this choice may never have the Iron Will feat. If he chooses to retain a sense of self, he gains the Iron Will feat, and his alignment becomes fixed and may not be altered by either magical or non-magical means. On top of that, whichever choice he selects, he becomes completely immune to all transmutation spells, including beneficial ones. Then we get what the author refers to as the core ability of the Mind Shifter, a class feature called Mind Theft. This allows the Mind Shifter to make a touch attack as a quote-unquote full attack action, and force the target to succeed on a somewhat oddly calculated will save, DC 15 plus Mind Shifter class level plus Charisma modifier, which will be somewhat higher than it should be, assuming the Mind Shifter takes all 10 class levels. 
Anyway, if the target fails the save, they take a fireball's worth of non-lethal damage and permanently lose a single spell-like ability of the Mind Shifter's choice, if he knows the abilities the creature has, or at random, if he doesn't. Then, long story short, and a decent amount of boilerplate ignored, the Mind Shifter gains that spell-like ability permanently. Of course, the class has a lot more to it than that. The next class feature, a Saying Touch, lets the Mind Shifter cast analyze, the Analyze Creature spell found later in the book at will by touching the creature. He gains some slight bonuses on this ability, including the ability to use it on corpses, which apparently the spell doesn't allow for, so I guess this ability is to allow the Mind Shifter to learn what kinds of spell-like abilities slain foes had so he can steal them in the future. He also gets a class feature called Mind Reaver that allows him to deprive the target of more spell-like abilities when he uses his Mind Theft class feature, although he doesn't steal the extra abilities. For some reason, this can't affect transmutation spells. He also gains three derangements, which are debilitating phobias or other psychological problems that the GM selects for the Mind Shifter. Unfortunately, there's no list of such items to choose from, and in fact, no information about a mechanical effect at all. It just says that they should be not be immediately debilitating, but should affect the Mind Shifter at inconvenient times and make normal life difficult. In other words, this class feature isn't a class feature at all, just a bunch of unsupported fluff, which will likely either be ignored by the GM and or player, or will prove as an excuse for the GM to grind the Mind Shifter's nose into the dirt with overblown psychotic episodes. Take your pick. Next comes the second choice, where he can either choose to leave the class forever and never return, or else continue along the path. If he chooses to leave the class, all the spell-like abilities he's stolen become quote-unquote permanent additions to the character, and he loses the Mind Theft class feature and the derangement he'll have gained at this point, as well as his immunity to transmutation. Alternatively, he gains a plus one bonus to intelligence, and as far as the rules of the game are concerned, at least, he can still just leave the class and never return anyway by taking levels in other classes. Then, the Mind Shifter gains the ability to stun opponents with a touch for an unreasonably high DC, and then he gains access to my favorite choice, the third choice. You see, at 7th level, and I quote, the Mind Shifter becomes aware of a potent new ability about to manifest. This power will allow the Mind Shifter's psyche to leave his body and move about on its own, much as a ghost is able to. This is occurring because the powers of a Mind Shifter are severing the connections between the character's soul and his form-locked body. Unfortunately, this separation may result in the Mind Shifter's death if he is not strong enough to survive the process. Doesn't that sound fun? The third choice gives another opt-out option, like before, but this time choosing to continue in the class does nothing but allow you to continue in the class. That is his 7th level class feature. At 8th level, the class grants the aforementioned ability, and upon reaching 8th level, the character needs to succeed on a DC 20 fortitude save, followed by a DC 20 will save, both of which ignore any magical enhancements the character might possess, for no good reason. If the will save fails, all that happens is that he gains an extra derangement, so most likely nothing at all. If the fortitude save fails, the character immediately gains the ghost template, unless both fail, in which case the character is permanently destroyed. On the other hand, if you survive this harrowing and strictly unnecessary process, then you can use astral projection and magic jar at will, and can become a ghost at will as well. So that's nice, I guess. Uh, what, what was this class about again? If you continue all the way to 10th level, you face the final choice, where you can choose to either remerge with your body, in which case you lose all the abilities you just gained vis-a-vis -vis becoming a ghost, but get a plus two bonus to your constitution score and can be affected by transmutation spells again. You'd forgotten about that, hadn't you? Otherwise, he loses his body and becomes a ghost, but keeps all his class features. 
If you're worried about one of your players taking this class, don't. It has some rather ridiculous restrictions, including the, that the prospective character must be able to cast the 4th level arcane spell Analyze Creature, found in this book, that they must be chaotic, that they must have a constitution of 17 or higher, and they must not have the Iron Will feat or have Transmutation as a prohibited school. So this definitely isn't a prestige class that's friendly to characters stumbling into it. Uh, you need to be absolutely certain that this prestige class is for you when you waste a whole bunch of ability score points by dumping them into constitution at character creation. Now, it's not uncommon for me to say some unkind things during these reviews, but believe me that when I say that I think the author was on an acid trip when he wrote this, this is my honest opinion and not a slight against his writing. Well, unless he really wasn't on some sort of drugs, then I guess it's sort of both. Uh, but really, this prestige class is so all over the place, crazy, disorganized, and poorly designed that I really don't know what else to think. Uh, there are three other prestige classes, the Savant, the Seer, and the Witness, and none of these are appreciably better than what we covered, than the two that we covered in more depth. Um, the first is more combat-focused, using divination to see into their foes' next moves and going into battle trances, etc. The Seer, unsurprisingly, gains various visions and pro prophecies, Unfortunately, most of those are whenever the GM feels like it, uh, and the witness is sort of like an investigator. Um, once we get away from the prestige classes, we move on to a section entitled Divination Spells. This section contains nearly 40 new divination spells of various levels. By now, my hopes aren't very high, though having been thoroughly mind-reaved by some of the previous classes, uh, but that doesn't mean that there might not be a few gems here. For starters, let's take a look at Analyze Creature, spelled A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, uh, that spell that kept coming up in that previous prestige class. Uh, it's a second level sorcerer wizard spell with close range and allowing a, for a fortitude save to negate it. It, and I'm going to quote again, cannot determine specific spell skills or spells known, if any, anything that a physical characteristic of the creature uh, is learned once the casting time is complete. The spell allows the caster to determine the target's type, subtype, natural armor bonus, base attack bonus, movement types and rates, natural weapon attacks and damage, unmodified statistics, innate extraordinary spell-like and supernatural abilities, racial bonuses to skills and statistics, inherent weaknesses, and current hit dice and hit points. So, more or less, it's a scan spell, for those of you who've played any kind of JRPG ever. True to the author's style, there are strange and unnecessary restrictions on what creature types and creature sizes can be affected, too. Oh, and you need a material component of a small piece of the target to be analyzed, meaning that really it doesn't have a range of close. It has a range of you have to get up close to them and pick off some hairs, and then they will kill you. Anyway, looking for some other interesting spells to show off, what about the Equation of Man? It's a ninth level sorcerer wizard spell, which is described as the ultimate form of social divination. Is it just me, or does that sound like one of the most underfunded departments at the Arcane University? The one where they get stuffed in a tiny little building off campus that hasn't been renovated in two centuries because no one thinks that social divination is in any way useful? It sounds like the sort of thing that wizards who major in it cause their parents to be ashamed and their friends to make jokes about how they'll be asking if you want mutton with that. Anyway, this is the ultimate form of it, so let's see what it does. Apparently, it opens the caster to the infinite knowledge of how his own race thinks, acts, and lives. Everything about the caster's race, from its history to its myriad social traditions, is laid bare and revealed in one moment of incredible revelation. It goes on to say that a caster under the effect of Equation of Man cannot fail an attack roll, skill check, or saving throw regarding his race. This, of course, means that a human who casts this spell cannot fail to hit another human if he swings his sword at him, or if he tries to shoot him from, oh, I don't know, let's say the moon. 
Further, there's another rather long paragraph that goes on to say how you can harness the awesome power of the spell to essentially make craft checks more quickly. It says that any task outside of combat that this spell applies to can be completed within its duration, which, for the record, is one round a level, as long as the caster can dedicate more than half the spell's duration to that task. The example that they give goes on to talk about how you can, how if you're an elf and you use this, you can craft a suit of fine elven chainmail in that period of time, or if you're a dwarf, you know, probably anything. Dwarves craft like everything, right? Y you get the idea. Um, of course, this bonus doesn't apply to chronicling any of the knowledge that the character gains in this way. That vague knowledge about everything, about the race and that. To balance thing out, though, uh, the caster takes a minus 10 penalty on any checks not involving his own race. So if our human from above tried to attack an elf, he'd suffer a minus 10 penalty. I think I can see why the social divination department never gets any funding. Not all the spells are bad, though. I quite like Hand of the Guilty, a fourth-level sorcerer wizard spell that turns an object touched into a sort of divining rod that leads to the last person before the caster to have touched it. Quite useful when applied to murder weapons, for example, or learning who put that frog in your pointy wizard hat. Um, there are others, too. Well, actually, to be perfectly 100% honest, of the 39 spells that are in there, that was the only one that I can honestly say that I liked. Uh, there were a decent number that weren't bad, but which hardly did anything to excite me and that I doubt I would want to use in-game. Uh, a couple were broken, and there were several that were as bad or worse than the equation of man above. Um, this brings us to a, new sec to a section of divination feats entitled Knowing the Unknowable. Uh, it contains 12 new feats that were theoretically, they're theoretically divination-themed, uh, some more loosely than others, such as Wolf and Boon, Tremulous Touch, Heightened Sight, and Awareness, all of which improve your mundane senses in a variety of ways, though admittedly, for flavor reasons, they do all require that you be able to cast divination spells in order to take them. Uh, one somewhat interesting feat, Defensive Divination, can be taken up to five times and grants a different, specific benefit each time, starting with a plus one competence bonus to AC and working all the way up to Evasion, uh, almost turning the feat into a sort of mini-class. Of course, considering that feats can require other feats, there's not really any reason why there shouldn't be five separate feats, each of which requires the previous one. But still, it's an interesting idea, and if gaining things randomly ever becomes chic again, uh, it might be interesting to make a feat that does four different things and you roll a die four each time you take it or something. I don't know. Um, there's a metamagic feat for casting things through a scrying spell, and another that changes a spell's saving throw from fortitude or reflex to will. Uh, there's also one that gives you the powerful benefit of being able to leave one spell slot per level unfilled and then fill them as a free action. While I suspect that the author may have been unaware that you can leave spell slots unfilled anyway and prepare them later in the day, the fact that you can get a handful of them prepared as free actions instead of taking 15 minutes is impressive. The next section is entitled Divination Feats, but is actually about magic items. Uh, there are several in here, and for the most part, they're what you would expect from the author. Flavor rules the day, often creating overly complicated and poorly designed mechanics with too little regard for balance or fun at the table. There are some salvageable items here, and a handful of cool ones, but it's hardly enough to redeem the book. Next comes an array of crystal ball variants made of other types of gems like turquoise, ruby, emerald, zircon, etc., uh, which have different effects on their use in scrying. For the most part, these are things like you can cast these specific spells through it while scrying, like Detect Evil, for instance, or Heal in another case, or one fire spell of any type in another, um, at any, like any one fire spell. 
Uh, on the other hand, many have nothing to do with scrying and just have add-on effects as long as you're holding them, like the subject is protected from protected by a delay poison. Uh, a number of these entries have asterisks that don't seem to go anywhere or reference anything, so I have no idea what those mean. Uh, but there is information about the extra cost of such gemstones on top of the cost of a crystal ball, as well as extra time, which I assume refers to crafting time as it is measured in days, but might be extra duration on scrying or extra casting time to cast it. For all I know, it doesn't say. Um, perhaps the most useful part of the book comes at the end, when the author gives advice to game masters on how to run a game with one or more competent diviners without letting them ruin everything. Uh, this actually has some good advice in it, and it's a shame that the rest of the book wasn't written as competently as this. Uh, overall, like so many books we've reviewed lately, it seems like the only really decent part of the book was the fluff and editorial content, with most of the design and mechanics being more or less worthless. Uh, on the other hand, while I made a big point about some of the bad design here, especially with the uh, Mind Thief, or whatever it was, um, there are some of the content is manageable and like I said the majority of the feats and spells are usable if not necessarily inspired and some of the magic items went the same way honestly though at three dollars and 99 cents I'm just not sure I can recommend it and thanks for that interesting review now it's time to move on to something else we're going to use the ancient and noble art of divination that we've been researching and focusing on all this week and we're going to pure into the future we're going to going to divine upcoming events and we're going to ascertain a knowledge of things yet to come and in, in other words what we're going to do now is we're going to shill out uh, and talk about some of our upcoming products that we're making and hopefully make you want to take a look at them and get excited about them and buy them importantly buy them <laughs> yes importantly buy them um anyway <coughs> so um now that all that's on the table, uh, we're going to go ahead and, first of all, actually, we, we have an announcement to make about the podcast. Um, unfortunately, the viewer response or listener response, whatever kind of response, uh, isn't quite what we had been expecting. And uh, while I'm sure it doesn't sound like we're particularly prepared when we sit down and, uh, and start doing this, actually, a lot of prep work does go into this podcast. Uh, and so... As a result, um, you know, we're, we're at the moment, the response that we're seeing from people doesn't seem like it's, it's enough to warrant the amount of work that we're putting into it. We do like the podcast, though, and we don't want it to go away entirely. So we're going to go ahead and, and we're scaling back the podcast. So in future episodes, uh, not tonight, but uh, starting next week, the podcast is going to be scaling back from about an hour long each night or each week to be about half an hour long. So it's going to be about half what it has been. Uh, don't worry. The, um, the various segments uh, will be sort of shrunk as well. So uh, you don't need to worry that it's just going to be a half hour review every week and then basically nothing else. I assure you the review isn't going to take up any more approximately of the time than it, it currently does. Uh, but anyway, we're going to go ahead and scale it back for now. If you are upset by this, if you want to see more of the podcast, uh, we do want to hear from you. Uh, so, you know, definitely drop us an email. You can reach me at arigs at necromancersonline.com. You can reach Josh at jzabak, necromancersonline.com, or go to our forum as well. Yeah, now before before you uh, you, you start 
you know, crying about that. That sounds like it's all bad news uh, that, you know, it's it's not all downside necessarily scaling back. The podcast does give us a chance to do things more concisely and to do a lot of very exciting kind of quick segments. So it's it's not all downside, but it, it will be a shorter segment. It's going to be more like uh, it's going to be less like an opera and more like a, uh, a punk rock song. But there's a. Uh, there's value to uh, to each thing, so you know don't worry too much. Uh, but definitely, if you uh, if you want to see more podcasts, longer podcasts, be sure to tell us. Because if we don't hear from you, we're just going to assume that uh, that you don't care. Plus, it it is also important to note that you know we do uh, each of us we only have so much time and energy to devote to NNW each week. So again, the energy that's not going into the podcast, that's going to be going directly into the articles, the free articles, four days a week. And it's also going to be going into our products. So those of you who actually buy books from time to time, you know, it's it's going into making those better. It's going into making the articles better. Uh, so, you know, bear that in mind as well before you uh, before you tell us how much you want more of the podcast. It is all coming from the same pie. Uh, but speaking of our upcoming products, uh, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about last week. Obviously, we talked about the book that just came out, A Necromancer's Grimoire, The Wonders of Alchemy, uh, quite possibly the best book on alchemy ever written. Um, I'll, admittedly, I haven't heard that from anyone, but, you know, it's possible. Uh, and as far as I know, it's true. I haven't heard any, uh, I haven't read any great books about alchemy, and I've looked. Uh, so, anyway, we talked about that last week. Uh, this week, for I think quite possibly the first time in Necromancers of the Northwest history, we actually want to talk about, as uh, as I said, some products that aren't out yet. Um, I, those of you who have been following us for a while may know that we, uh, we don't generally talk that much about our products before they see print. Uh, we have finally reached the point where we feel a little bit more comfortable talking about our products before we actually put them out, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of those upcoming products. Uh, so... Next month, on the 14th of May, uh, we're going to be releasing a product called A Necromancer's Grimoire, Masters of the Gun. And as you, you may be able to guess, this book is going to be primarily for gunslingers. Um, similar to our very popular Paths of the Druid book, uh, this is going to be... The book consists of three new prestige classes, uh, all of which are... Uh, obviously, they have a gun bent to them. Um, they're not... None of the prestige classes is specifically restricted to the gunslinger. Uh, all of them are available to uh, to anybody uh, who's willing to invest the uh, the effort and feats to, to become proficient with guns, and in two of the three cases, they'll need a source of grit as well, so they can take that feat that, that comes along with the gunslinger. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, just in case, um, uh, the the Gunslinger was a class that was introduced in Ultimate Combat from Paizo. It's a new base class. Uh, it, it works with... Um, th there's a bunch of firearms that are also introduced in that book. Uh, if you are not familiar with the Gunslinger uh, or any of that, then uh, unfortunately you, you will probably need to at least be familiar with their firearm rules in order to make any use of this book, even if you don't necessarily need to be familiar with the Gunslinger. Luckily, um, all of that information can be found for free online. Um, the, the D20 PFSRD site has all of that, so you don't need to buy anything else in order to use this book, but you will need to reference some other sources besides the core rules. Sadly, I didn't have much to do with the design of Masters of the Gun, but uh, Alex here did, so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask him a little bit about what he was, uh, what, what his process was and, uh, and his thoughts and feelings on this, on this excellent product. 
and uh, and let you hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So, firstly, uh, three new prestige classes. Uh, what uh, what led you to uh, to decide to do a trio of prestige classes for our gunbook? Well, actually, the answer to that goes back to um, Pass of the Druid, which I mentioned earlier is is what this book is is more or less exactly like. Um, I actually wasn't that involved in Paths of the Druid, uh, so I don't remember what led to that in particular book being just a, a set of three prestige classes. But what I do know is from the metrics that we get on DriveThruRPG that tells us, you know, who's buying how much of what and, and what's more popular, um, that book is one of our more popular ones. So, having seen that, when I saw that I wanted to do something for the Gunslinger, uh, I thought, well, that was a very popular book. Uh, I must be doing something right. Why don't I give that a shot and, and see if it works here? And I think overall that it, it did come out to um, to really allow you to take the gunslinger or, you know, using guns in general in a variety of different sort of specialized and fun niches, uh, which I think that it, it did a better job of than, for example, if we, we took other routes. All right. Very, uh, very fascinating. Personally, I, I agree that uh, that the prestige classes in this book give you a lot of different ways you could go with uh, with guns and develop your guys in different ways. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what uh, what grand archetypes you decided on and uh, and where the inspiration for those came. So uh, so let's start with the uh, the gun mage prestige class. Yeah, the the gun mage is definitely where I want to start. It's easily my um, easily my favorite in the class, uh, favorite prestige class in the book. Um, when I sat down and was starting to think of you know what sort of gun archetypes, you know, what sort of prestige classes can I do? Um, the first thing that came to mind by far was, you know, well, they've got the Arcane Archer, they've got the uh, Eldritch Knight is what, what they have in Paizo, uh, though there were several like him in, in 3.5. You know, they, they've got these. Uh, there's nothing like that for guns. That would be cool. I want to do something with magic guns. You don't see magic guns uh, as often as, you know, other stuff. Uh, so that, in particular class, obviously, you, you meld uh, magic and guns, and you I actually had a lot of fun doing that because that's one of the ones that uses grit, and then also, in addition to grit, can use... Um, I, I got to play around with being able to expend spell slots for that, too. Uh, but basically, there's, there's some really fun and exciting things that you can do in that process of mixing magic and, and stuff, sort of like how uh, the Arcane Archer gets, you know, their death arrows and their flurry of arrows, and I don't remember what they do. I never look at the Arcane Archer. But, you know, like that, you know, you can you can fire off one bullet, bullet that turns into six, or you can um, uh, magically... Uh, there was one that was inspired by the, the supposed JFK magic bullet, and you can shoot it, and then it, it, it hits somebody, and then ricochets in midair to, to you know go places where it shouldn't. Um, stuff like that. There's there's other cool things. Yeah, it's fascinating because you don't really see guns and magic combined that often. Uh, it does come up, and uh, I think that this was a uh, was a great way to capture that for anyone who's interested in playing a uh, a character who wants to combine the uh, the elements of modern firearms or or you know more realistically sort of Renaissance era kind of firearms and their uh, and their spell slinging wizard. And I think it's a a great hybrid class. Uh, personally, though, my favorite class in the book is the Hair Trigger Renegade. A uh, sort of more classic Renegado style guy, and uh, I want to hear a little bit more about that personally, and you know where where the you know inspiration for that came from, and what you were trying to accomplish with this class. Well, this class also has a fairly straightforward um, aim as far as what the the class is is going to wind, what your character is going to wind up looking at when you're done with it. Uh, if the first one was you know you've got magic and and this this is um, this 
is really uh, when I set out it, it was gonna be for the guy who's got two guns and you you dual wield pistols, um, or or rather revolvers. Um, as it as it progressed, I moved a little away from you know you absolutely have to have two guns. It's not really like that though. I still think that someone with two guns is gonna gonna come out better in the long run but whatever the case um what it's about is you know if you go and look at all of those firearms that paizo uh has there in ultimate combat and i'm sure there are other firearms around somewhere uh the majority of them you get one maybe two shots and you have to reload but there's a couple specifically the revolver stands out but there's as i learned while i was going through the class a couple of others um that allow you to uh that, that you know you can hold in, in the case of the revolver obviously six shots um, and so this class, what it does is it's, it's built around rewarding you for taking advantage of using one of those guns that has a higher capacity. So, um, one of their class features, for example, if you hit someone with the gun in the round, then you gain a bonus to damage for the next hit in that round. So if you hit them four times, then... Uh, on your fourth shot, you're going to be getting, I think, something like a plus eight bonus to damage for that shot. Um, it goes up for every time you hit them in the round. Uh, and then they have a cool ability at the end where uh, where they can actually fire off all six shots um, as a full round action. Um, things like that. So uh, really what that's about is um, is firing off a lot of shots really quickly. Honestly, I think that might be why I like it. Besides, characters with two guns are a lot more exciting than the one pistol guy. Uh, sorry, pistol duelers. Yeah, well, everybody likes Yosemite Sam for a reason. That's right. Um, speaking of, uh, of beloved cartoon characters, the next prestige class in the book uh, sort of hits a more Elmer Fudd kind of vein. He's a, uh, he's a rifle specialist, and let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about, uh, about this class. Well, once I knew that uh, we had the gun mage, uh, which I had always envisioned as being more of a pistol thing, but I guess in retrospect, whatever, uh, and the the one that was going to be, again, you know, probably is designed for revolvers, I figured that, you know, well, there's all of these two-handed firearms in the book as well. There's all these rifles. Rifles are an important kind of gun as well, even if they're a little less sexy, uh, you know, to see on, like, a cowboy or whatever. Uh, everyone everyone gets excited about the quick draw pistols. No one gets excited about the long range shooting. But you know, nonetheless, um, they're an important kind of gun, and so uh, I wanted to make sure that there was a little bit of love for the riflemen as well. So the sharpshooter uh, is is basically that uh, where the uh, hair trigger renegade uh, gains a bunch of bonuses for making multiple shots in a round. Uh, the the sharpshooter uh, is more of a you know caution cautious uh careful aiming uh kind of character and so he actually gains bonuses uh he gains class abilities that allow him to take some time to aim his shot and then he, he gets some some pretty substantial bonuses to make up for that uh loss of time to to keep it you know efficient and uh and reasonably powerful um and you know as, as the class goes on he can aim a little bit quicker and stuff but um really that's more of a I don't want to say it's more of a thinking man's uh, shooter because that implies that the the mage and the other one aren't. But you know, it's a little more, a little more cautious, a little more think ahead. And uh, you know, people who like to play the uh, the Batman wizard that I was talking about earlier in the review, they would like this as well if if they were going to do something without magic. So there you have it. We have uh, three very iconic sort of gunmen. We have the uh, 
the the mage gunman who combines magic and uh, and technology to the uh, to the greatest success. We have a a hair trigger renegade on uh, li living two steps ahead of the law, firing off a uh, hundred shots around from his pistols, and we have the uh, the lone gunman, the cerebral kind of uh, kind of one shot one kill kind of guy. Uh, so so we really do hit the uh, the sort of major kind of what you want in a uh, in a prestige gunman. I think in this book very well. One uh, one other thing I think before we move on, I just wanted to ask. So why why the gunman at all? Uh, obviously we uh, we we are very slow to adapt to new ideas here at Necromancer of the Northwest. But you've uh, you've really jumped on this one. So what's so what is it, Alex? What's with the gunman? Well, the real reason why I wanted to do something with the gunslinger is uh, my own experience with the class has been um, somewhat lackluster. Actually, I. Um, I had the opportunity to play a gunslinger at some point. Uh, those of you who have been listening to our podcast extensively uh, may be familiar with John, the uh, the Grinning Skull Morgan, uh, whose uh, whose podcast or whose whose ongoing story. Uh, I regret to inform you, using my uh, my masterful powers of divination, will probably not be returning in the uh, in the shifting of the uh, the the way that the podcast works. But anyway, uh, he was actually a character that I ran in a, in a short campaign, and he was a gunslinger, and I remember the entire time being very, very frustrated that there was pretty much no reason for me to play a gunslinger instead of a fighter. I should have had full levels in fighter. It would have been better for me, um, because other than getting that gun at first level, uh, which if you're starting at a later level and can afford to buy a gun that's actually you know good, like a revolver, uh, then... You know, you you can actually get um, instead of uh, instead of being a gunslinger and getting the uh, the proficiency with firearms, you can be a fighter and have your your fighter feet be. Look at me, I have that. I have proficiency with firearms, and then the deeds. While some of them are cool in theory and they they look good in the book, uh, there were like no deeds up until very very late in the class uh when like around 17th level you start getting really really powerful ones uh but other than that like none of the deeds in the class are anything that you would ever actually want to use at the table they're um they're they just don't do anything they're not very fun they're they sound cool but you would never actually use them and so what i wanted to do as part of this was to to give players access to deeds that are going to be a little more fun in the long term uh, and that they're going to get more use out of, and I think that uh, I think that the deeds that you get from the um, the arcane, the the gun mage um, that I was talking about earlier, like like again, uh, what I was talking about there, where you can shoot off bullets and they uh, they multiply or they you turn them in midair and all of the other things that you can do. You know, he gets a lot of deeds. Those were both deeds, um, and then the the six shooter, the hair trigger renegade, also gets. Um, also gets a number of deeds that relate into that and tie into that stuff. Um, the the last one, the um, the marksman, the the sharpshooter, uh, he doesn't use deeds, uh, but he does still gain a bunch of cool features. It's just that when I was making him um, for that class, it it just didn't feel right to require grit as a mechanic, and so uh, because he wasn't using grit, there wasn't really a way to use deeds, as those of you familiar with the class will be aware. Um, that's probably enough about the uh, the book. Uh, you may hear a little bit more about it when it comes out. You may not. Um, whatever the case, uh, 
we're going to go ahead and talk about, uh, we're actually really, you know, looking into the far future now, and uh, we're going to talk about the product that's coming out in June. Uh, I don't have an exact date because that's so far away, but you can bet that it's going to be pretty close to the 15th, and it's going to uh, be about magic rings. Uh, those of you who are not, uh, those of you who are not familiar with us may not be aware of our sort of, um, one of our sub lines of products, uh, called the Ebon Vault. Uh, but we've, we've produced a number of, of products where we will take a, a specific type of magic item. In the past we've done staves, uh, we, we did swords, we did armor, and we created a new type of magic item called orbs, uh, all of which what we do is we, we look at them and we, you know, especially with stabs and orbs, but uh, with all of them really, we look at them and we go, hey, how can we make these more exciting? How can we make these something that, you know, players will really get excited about and go, wow, this really is magical. And uh, now we're going to turn our attention to rings. Um, so the book is going to contain over 50 new kinds of magic rings uh, and true to form on all of these uh on all of these Ebon Vault projects, it's going to have a uh, a, a very widespread. So you're going to have rings that are. Um, I think there may be some that are under a thousand. I don't want to promise that. Okay, it looks. I'm getting some nods here. It looks like we do have some that are under a thousand. Uh, so we have some relatively cheap rings. We also have. I seem to recall. I, I'm pretty sure we did break the 200,000 GP barrier. I seem to recall. I made a couple that that did that, and there may be. Uh, Maybe some from Josh. I haven't actually. It's still in the process of being uh, being finalized. So, um, but anyway, there's over 50 new magic rings, and they run a wide gamut. And not not only do they run a, a wide gamut from less than a thousand to over 200,000, they're they're pretty evenly spread out there as well. You know, you can you can get products or whatever where people say, yeah, no, we have we have spells all the way from first to ninth, and then it turns out they have all ninth and like one first and like two second. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, so we've got that. There's rings for everybody, and we specifically were looking when we did it at getting rings that were more um, more creative, more fun, did more interesting things. One of the nice things about the ring slot is you can do whatever the hell you want with it, really. Uh, there's there's no a, a lot of items have you know like boots should really have something to do with your feet. Josh has talked about that extensively uh, in previous podcasts. But uh, with rings, there's a little bit more leeway. And really the only thing specific to rings about what they should be doing is, uh, as far as we can tell, at least whenever possible, they should do fun and crazy things. Uh, obviously there are, you know, rings of protection, which are a little less fun and crazy. But, you know, every uh, there's an exception to every rule, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, not everything can be uh, can be crazy, but uh, you can certainly come up with uh, with 50 plus items that are uh, that are very interesting, uh, including actually a, a handful that make those more boring rings like Ring of Protection or Ring of Climbing more interesting. Uh, so that's something to look forward to if you've uh, if, you, if you've always wanted uh, to find a an item that was tailor-made to have synergy with another item, I don't think you can do better than with rings. So uh, we do explore that a little bit, as well as a, uh, as well as a number of other things, including a, uh, a handful of intelligent rings, which have been lovingly crafted with, uh, with extensive descriptions of, uh, of their origins, their personalities, uh, what they look like as a ring, and how they talk if they talk, 
or how they telepathy with you if they do that. And uh, and it, this is kind of uh, filling in for our, uh, our ordinary legendary specific item section. And I think that this is going to be something that, uh, that, that players are going to be really excited about because who doesn't love intelligent items? Uh, particular, and GMs, I think, will, uh, will appreciate that they have pre-built personalities so that they don't have to, uh, have to come up with something 100% from scratch. Uh, and I, I think that this is a section that's going to uh, really appeal to everyone. But don't worry that we've, uh, that we've just left our um, intelligent items to be boring and one-dimensional. This is a plus-one ring of deflection with a handful of other abilities. They do all have a, uh, have a sort of unique spin on them that, uh, that, that gives them that extra something special. Yeah, actually, um, this book is has actually opened my eyes personally, both as a uh, as a designer and a and a GM, uh, to how awesome intelligent items really are. I don't know about you, I can't speak for your group, but if it's anything like mine, you have basically never seen an intelligent magic item in your game. Uh, I think I had one once. It's because I was playing a higher level game, and a player wanted to have an intelligent item, and he said, you know, hey, can I have this intelligent hat? And he, I was like, sure. Uh, actually, in retrospect, I think there was there was another time where I, I had a magic item that technically wasn't intelligent, but the GM was nice enough to uh, to just say that it could talk and say stupid things anyway, so that was fun. Um, but actually looking at it, um, when, when we went to go do this, because we, we wanted to, you know, uh, to get those in there, uh, it turns out that Intelligent magic items are not something that GMs should really need to be as intimidated by as they probably are in general. Um, I know that they sound uh, like they're going to be a lot of work. You have to go look at that whole section, and there's like weird abilities, and like there's tables and things. But it's actually really easy to put one together uh, mechanically, um, and then from there, you know, basically you just have a fun NPC who can who can do cool things. Uh, obviously. Um, you know, they tend to, sometimes they cost a little bit more than they really should, but that's also not as bad as it sounds. And again, if you're in the position of being a DM or a GM, you can, uh, you can just say, you know, well, you can have the, uh, the thousand GP, it doesn't matter. Uh, but anyway, I think that, that those are going to make for a really fun and exciting, uh, thing that you can implement into your game, give it a little more personality. I think that, uh, that those intelligent rings are going to be really fun. The book has a couple of other things. It's got um, uh, mo most of them are there's some other flavorful stuff. There's um, some descriptions, uh, some general purpose descriptions of of just flavorful what rings physically look like. So you know even if you are just giving your PCs a, a ring of protection plus one or or something else, even a mundane ring, if all of a sudden you need to know what that looks like because someone cares, then you can you can whip that out. And we've got a bunch of cool. Uh, sort of general purpose pre-made ones. Um, also, a die percent table of command words and possibly some other things by the time it's done. Don't know for sure. Um, but that's what you can expect there. We've got one other product that I want to talk to you about. It's our super special secret awesome ultra project. Uh, as a result, uh, I don't know uh, when it's going to be coming out. I'd like to say it's going to be our July release, but... It's probably just wishful thinking on my part uh, because it is a big, big, big project. Uh, those of you who picked up Advanced Arcana 2, uh, which I'm almost 100% certain was our first product to break 100 pages. Uh, Libra Vampire came really close. It was in the, the mid-90s. Uh, anyway, um, that was... Advanced Arcana 2 was, was by far... or. Uh, was was to the to date our longest book. This book promises to be about twice as long, um, if not longer. Uh, and so 
we're we're working on it. We've been working on it for quite some time, and we will probably continue to work on it for a little while. But when it is done, we are very, very, very excited about it. And in fact, we are so excited about it that we want to start telling you a little bit about it now. So, to uh, to give you a quick overview, the uh, the book is about demons. Um, specifically, it's about a race of uh, of evil outsiders, which we're currently calling demons. They don't have anything to do with the uh, with the demons that you're familiar with, the ones that are all chaotic evil. They're all based on um, what what we did actually is we took the uh, the Ars Goetia, which is from the uh, the Lesser Key of Solomon. For those of you who are big on uh, big on occult lore or who will have remembered that from some game or anime or something where it came up. Uh, maybe you watch Supernatural, it pops up in there a couple of times. Anyway, um, it's a list of 72 demons uh, called out by name, that, and then it gives you information on how you can summon them, uh, and then you can, uh, you, you can bind them and make them do stuff for you, even though they're super princes and they command millions of legions of demons. If you have the right, uh, have the right incantation, you can make them do whatever you want according to the Ars Goetia. Uh, so we thought this was cool. We're big fans of the Ars Goetia, or we were until we spent this much time with it. Uh, turns out it's not as exciting a book as you might think. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we did that. We have, um, the, the book basically has two different parts. The first part, uh, which I'm a little bit more involved in, has to do with um, uh, sort of a, a new system by which you too can harness the power of the Ars Goetia and make uh, summoning rituals which you can use to summon demons. And the best part about this is that you can do so without taking a single level of spellcasting. You don't need to use any spells because just like in the Ars Goetia, all you need to do is draw the right symbols, speak the right words, and, uh, you know, there's some other things involved, obviously, but... Uh, Using that system, fighters can call up demons. Uh, anybody can. You don't need special rules. There are some things set aside for people who do have access to, say, planar binding. But uh, the core system there is uh, is for anybody, uh, and so everybody's going to have access to this book. And then it, it gives rules for you know making packs with demons, and you know unlike in the Ars Goetia, you you have to do some sort of equivalent exchange. You have to buy your stuff from them. You don't just get free wishes all the time, sadly. Uh, you know, I, I, we are third party, so I guess that might be something you were expecting, but uh, no. Uh, anyway, um, the, you, you can certainly get some, some benefits out of it, and there's a lot of things you can't go buy in your, your normal magic shop, so don't, don't go thinking that there's no reason to summon demons. You just you do have to, to pay the piper, I guess. Um, and then there's information on, on all of that. But before you run off thinking that that's not going to be uh, that's going to be all that much fun, there's a there's, it's a very robust system and uh, and it definitely promises to be a much more exhilarating and entertaining summoning experience than uh, you know lesser planar ally has proven to be and, uh, and I think that this is this book is going to provide the uh, the the best demon summoning experience that you, you could have really I mean there's a, there's a lot of work that that that's gone into making that uh, you know the best it could possibly be there's a there's a lot going on there it's very dynamic and it's uh, it's very interactive and i think it, i think it's going to be something that uh, that people are going to really want to do as soon as they get their hands on this book and i think that that's a uh, one of the things that makes it a real 
winnings. Actually, his moves makes a product, you know, just a winner on its own. Of course, that's not the only thing in the book. Uh, as, as Alex mentioned, it's broken up into two sections, and uh, the the other section, which is uh, which is going to be uh, notably longer, uh, and what what's going to be pushing uh, what's going to be pushing the boundary. Uh, is uh, is well essentially it's a bestiary uh, where we offer you 72 brand new demons ranging in CRs from 5 to 25 and uh, and once again uh, as with the ring book there's an even distribution here we got uh, we got 72 guys we got them split up uh, all throughout there so that you can have brand new uh, handcrafted uh, Folklore, coat lore inspired demons uh, to uh, to include in your game and uh, all all throughout. And in addition to uh, to merely providing you with stat blocks, we've uh, we've sort of gone the extra mile and uh, and changed the uh, one ecology sentence that, that bestiaries tend to give you uh, and uh, and added a much longer description, uh, not just of what special powers these demons have. Uh, though that is included in addition to uh, their in-combat powers, a lot of them have uh, have things that relate to our summoning rules specifically, and uh, and there's there's inclusions there and rules talking about that. But beyond that, you get uh, you get fairly uh, in-depth uh, looks at their uh, at their personalities and their uh, and, and their lives. And uh... yeah, because the the thing to to keep in mind about this is these aren't. Like you know, it's not seventy-two new demons. Like there's the uh, the Quasit and the Merilith and you know races of demon. These are these are based on the they're based on the Ars Goetia. So in the Ars Goetia, you have seventy-two individual unique demons who they they all have like ranks from like Duke to uh, or Baron or whatever, all the way up to Demon King. Uh, and these are all these are all straight up. We have we have taken those. We have expanded greatly on what the Ars Goetia has to say, uh, drawing on on other parts of folklore about those demons in some cases, or just you know applying our own um, twisted creativity to them to uh, to make them into something that's going to be a little more interesting and in depth. Though we kept all of the things that uh, that made the Ars Goetia you know famous and great, mostly from what I can tell the uh, the fantastic. Uh, the fantastic physical appearances of a lot of these, and you know some of their their cool abilities. But anyway, um, so so these are these are unique demons. Their stat blocks are built from scratch to reflect what the uh, what the Ars Goetia uh, describes about them and how we've expanded on that. And then we go on to talk about their personalities. We talk about their realms in uh, in hell or whatever plane they wind up being in. Again, um, the Ars Goetia's cosmology doesn't match very well with the one in uh, in Pathfinder, so. We're currently working on resolving that in particular issue, um, but really, what it does is is not only does it give you uh, those robust summoning rules, it also gives you 72 new stat blocks, and then on top of that, because you know there's no particular reason you can't just drop, uh, you know, Bale or or whatever random demon Nibirius. Uh There's no particular reason you can't just you know drop him in as as something that got summoned. But on top of that, you know, it gives you the personalities and background information on 72 new demon princes or nobility uh, of various types that you can use for all sorts of crazy. Uh, planning and scheming madness in your game. Yeah, so basically, uh, basically, you get a, a great breakdown, very, uh, very wide basis of uh, of creatures to pick through, and they're 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 all very, uh, very unique. 
Uh, I remember when we were first starting this project, we uh, we had toyed with the idea of, of you know, just making Bale or whatever a, a pit fiend and giving him, like, a sorcerer level or messing with its feats or whatever. But, uh, but ultimately, we resolved that, that that would not be good enough and that, uh, that you know, you, the reader, deserve better. And, uh, and that we, in fact, could not be satisfied, you know, uh, stripping these uh, the, these great demons of everything that that makes them what they are, uh, in order to uh, to f- just sort of mush into the uh, into the existing cosmology more easily. Um, as a result, uh, you know, the it's kind of a become a complex issue. Uh, the uh, the co- the ecology of our uh, of our product here, one that's still being tweaked uh, and probably will be for a while now. But um, you know. Really, we wanted to uh, to get something special out of this because you know, uh, you guys you know deserve something that that's the best we can come out with, and uh, and more importantly, we you know it's it's just wouldn't be doing justice to uh, to names like you know Asmodee and you know Belial to just you know make them Baylors. It's just not good enough. <laughs> Yeah, and and really, when you get right down to it, the um, a major part of the reason why we uh, why we decided to do such a huge endeavor, which is by far larger than any product project we've ever embarked on before, uh, is because you know we really think that you know the whole aspect of of summoning fiends and making packs with demons and devils and and all of that sort of sort of stuff and you know just just devil princes and ecologies of evil outsiders in general all of that sort of stuff that's something that's that's really fun and it's one of the things that that can make your D&D game you know go over the top and be super exciting and we really love that and so we're going to we we wanted to make sure that there were really cool things uh, that you could do with that. So we wanted to make sure that you get really cool and really fun rules for you know how you can implement the demons by summoning them. So if you're an evil character or a morally ambiguous character, anybody but a paladin, uh, and you think that you know there's a chance that you might you know ever want to make some sort of supernatural wish, well, hey, you're going to be able to use this book, and you're going to have a fun time uh, trying to keep your soul intact after talking to one of these demons. Uh, on top of that. Uh, if you're a DM and you want, you know, some some more support or something for uh, for your bad guy or your cultist who's going to be some of these, there's a lot of information here. Uh, there's a lot of things that you know could lead to uh, why your villains are running around doing stuff. You can actually create a lot of adventures out of this this summoning process uh, as the uh, as the PCs you know get tipped off that there's a demon summoning involved when somebody starts snapping up all of the jade in town because it's an important aspect of a ritual to summon so-and-so, although they might not be aware of that at the time. But anyway, uh, also, you know, maybe maybe as a GM, you also enjoy uh, the whole demonic bartering aspect, and, you know, this gives you great ways to, to throw that out there to your players. Uh, and then even if none of those things are true for you, you still get 72 new demon stat blocks. If worse comes to worse, you can call them something else, but you get 72 great new unique stat blocks, all of which have something new and interesting that they can do that no other stat block can do. They have all they all have new special abilities for combat and for out of combat. Uh, so we're really, really excited for this book. Uh, look forward to hearing more about it in future podcasts, not like next week, but you know, in the future when we've had a little more time to work on it, when we maybe have a release date. Uh, for you. Uh, we really are excited about this. We want you to get excited about it as well. So, uh, demons, yay. Uh, on that note, <coughs> the, uh, 
Divination Week is now officially over because we are done with this in particular podcast. So join us next week. We're going to have all sorts of cool new content on our website. And when you come back here, uh, the podcast will be a little bit shorter, but it will still be just as sweet. Thank you very much and have a great day.